there's 200,000 individuals in Australia that are earning between 250,000 and a million dollars per annum. There's another 220,000 self-managed super funds with balances between a million dollars and $10 million, who collectively have uh, around 560 billion of total assets in their, uh, in their uh, sort of control. And many of those investors, like me, want access to private equity. Many of those investors are struggling to get it. So what are my predictions for 2022? Well, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, so it's probably no surprise that I think private equity is going to outperform. Um, but beyond that kind of self-interest, that's pretty obvious. I think you know, there's, there's a really strong case that private equity is very well positioned uh, to manage and create value in quite turbulent times. Um, over the next few minutes, we'll talk a little bit about why. We'll go into uh, a bit of detail on, on the current macro situation. Um, I'll go into the weeds a little bit and talk about kind of what active management really means in private equity. I will uh, have a look at some historic data to see, you know, what evidence have we got of this sort of private equity value creation story. And then we'll have a look a little bit at kind of why investors are missing out or who's missing out. We'll look at who's investing into private equity today. Um, we'll look at some of the barriers to entry and reasons that people haven't been investing historically. And then we'll have a look at some of the conditions, you know, that I think are kind of setting the stage for a potential democratization of access into private markets or private equity. So <clears throat> I think it's useful before we get started is to just sort of take a step back and say, well, what do I mean by private equity? In its broadest definition, you know, private equity can really cover a really broad um, kind of nebulous set of asset classes. You know, it covers everything from early stage venture, uh, kind of growth capital, buyout, you know, you could throw in infrastructure, you could, you could throw in parts of the property sector as well. I think one, that, one thing that is clear is that those barriers, those distinctions between the different segments of the broader private equity landscape are starting to blur. So rather than getting bogged down in a specific uh, type of assets or a specific stage of maturity, I prefer to just focus on three key uh, sort of fundamental features that, that we see in, in private equity assets. You know, the first one is that these things are privately held. They're not listed on the stock exchange. It's pretty obvious, that one, uh, it's in the name. Um, the second, you know, is that these assets are professionally managed. The idea that there is a layer interposed between the investor and the executive management uh, of the business. But the third and really most important feature of private equity is this notion of active management. You know, that the shareholders um, are getting a benefit from an additional layer of influence and control that is above and beyond just casting a vote at an AGM. Um, is private equity ready for democratization? Well, I'll, I'll leave it up to you guys to answer that one. Um, but I'd argue that there's a really strong case that you know the two individuals that we can see in this uh, on this mountaintop and uh, probably the the deep abyss of of the west coast of New Zealand, you know, folks like that are wanting to get access to private equity, and they're wanting to do it more. So before I kind of dive into that, let's just take a step back and say, well, where are we at at the moment? Um, I don't think it takes you know a genius to say, look, there's turbulent times ahead. And you've probably heard, uh, you know, a lot about this, uh, you know, 
around the traps uh, of late. Um, I think that there are plenty of other people out there who are just way better positioned to opine on the macro setting than I am. But let's maybe just recap on a couple of the highlights, right? The first one is that there's rising inflation pressure um, around the world. US is kind of leading the charge on that, but it's, it's, it's a global phenomenon right now. The response to that is necessarily to raise interest rates. Now, inter raising interest rates, actually, I think, you know, when we look at the chart on the bottom left-hand side there, we need to think about raising interest rates, not just in the context of the last few years, but we've been in a 40-year interest rate super cycle. Like, this is a fundamental shift for us to get back to some version of normal that has really been in existence, uh, been distorted ever since the GFC. You know, and that's been coupled with you know, unprecedented levels of liquidity injection into the system um, you know, through quantitative uh, easing. And we're going to see the start of, of the unwinding of that, not just tapering, but actually you know, moving into quantitative tightening. On top of that, we've got the lingering sort of you know, COVID factors, right? We've got um, continued supply chain disruptions. We've got labor shortages, both domestically and internationally, for skilled and unskilled uh, labor. We've got mobility curtailment, which has been driving some of those labor shortages. And as much as I would love for Omicron to be the final chapter in this very sad COVID saga, I think the reality is, you know, there's probably more around the corner. You know, the, the thing that's not on this slide, which I'd add to, is obviously, the, you know, the spectre of conflict uh, in Europe at the moment, um, which is just another shadow kind of being cast out uh, in the investing environment. So what does this mean for investing? Well, I, I think it means you know, the days of easy, free money are kind of gone, or at least are numbered. Um, it means there's going to be pockets of value that get created, but different sectors, different industries are going to be you know, impacted unevenly. And so what you really want in this type of environment is super active management. And that's why I think private equity kind of stands out. So, what do I mean when I talk about active management in the context of private equity? I think it's, it's quite possible for me to just get up here and give you a bit of a dry uh, definition, but I get asked this question quite often. And I thought it would be useful to talk through a few case studies that really illustrate you know, what does private equity active management look like when you're under the, you know, look under the hood. So the first case study we'll go through is, is in downstream oil and gas. And this is the notion that private equity active management can really be about active ownership and on the ground influence in a business. The second case study is around data centers and actually focus on active pursuit of preferred thematics. And then the, the third case study is in the context of renewables. And it's looking at active management through the lens of you know, the, the active screening of uh, deals. Because it's not just the deals that you do in private equity, it's actually perhaps even more so the deals that you don't do. Uh, so look, in the first case study here, looking at downstream oil and gas, in this case, you know, there was an asset for sale, uh, a global oil major looking to exit its downstream business. It had you know, eight different reporting lines going all back to Singapore, but no single country head that was running the business. Uh, the management team were super proud of the business that they were leading, were running. It was a leading player in the industry by volume. And it was because volume was the only thing that they were really being focused on internally. Um, you know, 
you know, we came in as sort of private equity owners. What did active management look like? Well, the first thing was appointing a new CEO. You know, this candidate had come through highly regarded within the network, um, had industry experience, really strong people leadership um, skills, and drove a lot of value in the business. The next step was to appoint a new board. That was sort of finding a mix between industry expertise and um, and uh, you know good governance behaviour or good governance for expertise uh, background, and um, you know and in this case there's actually some shareholder representation as well. Um, the next key lever was really around a comprehensive strategy turnaround. So this was getting into the business, understanding the drivers of value. Um, there were, you know, you know, it was a, a major program of work that was ultimately owned by the CEO and the board, but in this case, actually, you know, really driven forward by the private equity owners, um, with a number of people seconded into the business on a full-time basis to really drive that strategy forward. Uh, the result was, you know, a major cultural change program, a real, a real shift in the in the customer offer, and a big change to the pricing strategy. You know, rather than just a focus on value. Um, the result was you know, a, a step change in profitability and value creation, and ultimately a 48% IRR delivered over a five-year hold period. The second case study here is about um, you know, this, the idea of active pursuit of desired thematics. So you know, the observation would be made that there was you know, massive growth in global data volumes driven predominantly by the rise of, of video content and rich content which we're all consuming, uh, plus the fact that we're all carrying around sort of a, a little computer in our pocket these days. Um, you know, in theory, you'd say, well, that, that, suggests, that, um, uh, that suggests that data centers should be a, a no-brainer. But actually, at the time of making this investment, they'd had a bit of a checkered past. You know, they were either being run as kind of dumb real estate uh, with a very low value-add proposition to the customer, um, or they came with significant technology risk and, uh, and obsolescence risk because you know, servers were advancing so quickly and the world was moving to the cloud. Or they were being run as um, you know, sort of offshoots of the telcos and really designed as a trap to just lure in customers and then try to cross-sell them services. It wasn't being um, appreciated by the customers themselves and it certainly wasn't an attractive value proposition if you were trying to acquire somebody's um, assets like that. So, Active management in this case was really about having a, a detailed review of the data center landscape, identifying that you know, ultra-reliable, third-party, co-located data centers were really going to be the future. These are basically you know, facilities where you bring your own technology, we'll supply you with uh, you know, high level of physical security, uh, and then cooling and power, and the rest is up to you. It's a little bit like being in a, um, oh sorry, there's, yeah, there's also this kind of naturally reinforcing benefits to scale in that type of environment. And it's a little bit like being in a, in a, in a big shopping center. You know, um, the smaller retails, retailers want to get in there to be closer to a Coles and a Woolies because they know that that's going to drive foot traffic. So in this, in this instance, you know, there were actually opportunities to pursue this strategy either via listed or unlisted. We had two you know, really strong businesses, kind of, which we were lining up side by side. But in the end, actually, um, the, the conviction was really gained on the private side, because we were able to access information that you just couldn't get in a listed market environment. Um, so that was basically customer data, um, 
you know, getting conviction around how are they, uh, how are they performing, what are their growth aspirations within the business. Um, so look, through a, a combination of like major capex investment um, and, and customer growth, that business then sort of increased EBITDA by three and a half X and increased in EV uh, by six X over a five year, a six year hold period, sorry. Uh, case study three is in renewables. And look, this one was really about, um, you know, the deals that you don't do. So in the interest of time, I'm just conscious we're getting a little bit of a hurry up here. Um, that, uh, you, you know, the, you were all aware that the world's decarbonizing. Um, it's, it's no news here. You know, greenfield renewables are, you know, an attractive place to put your money in theory. Um, this, this was a, a deal that was presented um, that was basically ticking all the ESG boxes and on the face of it looked like a great opportunity. Once you dug into the detail and the weeds at a level of information that wouldn't have been available on a listed market, you actually saw that the, the, the most critical feature of this deal, which was an innovative offtake strategy, actually resulted in equity wearing a whole lot of risk that it wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, so look, in this case, you know, the, the, the active management was all about deciding not to do the deal instead of you know, doing the thing that was in front of you. So how does active management kind of show up in returns? Um, I think this is quite an interesting chart. It started from the US, and it's kind of showing relative value creation of, of various private equity vintages across time um, versus uh, the S&P. Uh, on the left-hand side, you'll see, um, you know, so in, in 1999, effectively, for funds raised in 1999, you know, they delivered on average 11.8% per annum alpha uh, outturn uh, relative to the S&P. It's a pretty strong endorsement, I think, of the private equity approach to active management, um, and particularly the fact that we've seen it kind of right through the cycle. So who's investing in private equity today? Well, it's a, I'm sure it's of no surprise to you guys. Look, the, the, the overwhelming majority of investment is coming from uh, institutional investors. Uh, the data from Prequin here shows that institutional investors are um, you know, allocating between 20 to 30% uh, into alternatives and broadly into private uh, including private equity, whilst you know, individuals are much, much lower at sort of around 5%. I'd, I'd imagine in, here in Australia that would be even lower once you stripped out you know, uh, real estate. So in addition, I guess, to the higher allocations today from instos, you're also seeing the intention to put even more money into private equity. Um, and we're seeing that echoed here in, here in Australia with the Future Fund, you know, just a few weeks ago, indicating a kind of a tilt to, towards uh, renewables, uh, sorry, a tilt towards private equity and alternatives. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, the quote was that they're preferring uh, skill over liquidity in this market environment. So why haven't investors traditionally been putting money into, uh, or individual investors been participating in private equity? Um, I think the first, there's, there's a few barriers here. The first one is product complexity and understanding. But I think that's starting to change. You know, investors are more knowledgeable today than they have been ever before. Uh, there's just a wealth of information out there online, and there's really a desire to chase the smart money. Uh, illiquidity has been another hurdle. And I wouldn't pretend that you know, we should dress this up as something that it isn't. You know, uh, private equity is not for everybody. It, it is illiquid. But GPs are now starting to look at ways that they can be more innovative in providing liquidity options to investors that are sitting in their vehicles. 
you know, another issue has been around investment minimums, and I think this kind of hits people in two ways. Um, you know, the first is that there's, there's an initial commitment to a vehicle. Um, as a new investor, you know, it, it, they're quite chunky. And so you'd actually, as, a, as an individual investor, you want to be, um, you want to have a significant portfolio before you're putting, you know, uh, a toe in the water into, into private equity. And the second is that it kind of results in quite chunky bets being placed um, on individual managers and strategies. So you're, it's quite hard to get a diversification strategy um, unless you're, you know, really quite large in PE. Um, you know, technology, I think, is really a key to, you know, reducing uh, some of those barriers. Um, and the final hurdle has, has been around access. You know, not everybody can get access to private equity. A lot of the top funds are, um, you know, closed to small investors. But we're starting to see that really change um, globally. You know, there are new uh, technology platforms opening up where even the very top tier vehicles are opening themselves up to, to smaller investors uh, with smaller minimums. Um, and that's all being done through sort of technology intermediaries. I guess the key takeaway here is that, you know, that people have, have kind of missed out on private equity for some very real reasons, but that actually, you know, the, the sands are shifting on this and um, we're starting to see some, some real change coming, coming through. So just to recap, I think, um, you know, it's well understood we're heading into turbulent times, right, both uh, on the operating uh, perspective and from a capital markets perspective. You know, act, but I would say the active management approach of private equity is particularly well suited uh, to these kind of conditions. And there's also, you know, there's good, uh, there's good historical data to back this up. I think it's clear that, you know, we know that PE's traditionally been the domain of uh, institutional investors, but uh, that's starting to change, you know. Individual, individuals have struggled to access because of a bunch of barriers, but that's, you know, the, those barriers are shifting principally because of technology. Uh, and I think that taken together, these, um, these all give kind of strong weight to the, the proposition today, which is, you know, private equity is, is set to outperform in 2022, and most of you are going to miss out. As a private markets investor, or private equity investor in particular, are you selecting general partners, private, private equity funds, or are you going directly to companies to invest? Yeah, we're direct investors, yeah. Right. So um, as you're taking an equity stake, are there, in, in the context the way that you see private equity, is there usually a debt finance package as well? Well, that really depends on the part of the, uh, of the um, private equity landscape that you're operating in. So if you're in buyout, um, you know, leverage buyout, that's really the, a key source of value is, is all about how much debt you can put into this thing in order to juice up the return. If you're focused on growth capital, which is really the space that Milford, oh, sorry, that Milford occupies, um, we're much less oriented around uh, you know, the balance sheet and the, the use of leverage. Right. Okay, great. So um, you know, with that in mind then, the top rated question we've got so far is how will rising rates affect PE, particularly in the LBO space? Yeah. Well, look, I think in the LBO space, which is not um, Milford's uh, home territory, you know, I think that that's, it's a challenge, right? Um, for folks that have got high levels of gearing into these assets, um, uh, you know, there's rising interest rates are, are going to be an issue. And although there's, you know, relatively strong growth um, forecast in, in an economic sense, there's no doubt that that puts, that puts pressure on LBO-style investors. So when you make that proposition about private equity outperforming, what's your assumption in terms of level of gearing, level of debt around that? Well, it's that, I mean, that's horses for courses would be my argument there. 
we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, in the type of the style of investing that Milford participates in, you know, we're very much active in uh, growth capital investing. Like I said, you know, where where leverage is far less of a driver um, uh, in the assets. Okay, great, thank you. Yeah. Um, so a hand went up here very quickly. Please go ahead, and I'll repeat the question after you've uh, asked it. Do funds of funds in the private equity space solve the problems that you put up on the screen before? Well, for individual investors, um, get, well, I think they're probably two slightly different things, right? Fund of funds are not necessarily accessible to a lot of individual investors, would be my argument. Um, accessing the listed vehicles that are the, the GPs, which you can do, you know, anybody can go on and, and buy shares in those. I think that is a potential way to play the private equity um, value creation story, absolutely. We've got a great question come in from Hobart. Thank you very much. Um, and their question is, is PE ready for democratization or should it remain accessible only to wholesale or institutional investors? Would a rush of retail money reduce or increase opportunities for PE firms to generate sustainable alpha? That is a really good question. Um, I, in terms of democratization, I actually don't think private equity is super well suited to retail money. I think it is, you know, by its very nature, it's illiquid. And therefore, um, you know, there are certain, it, doesn't, it just doesn't suit every investor. So I would see that there's, um, you know, uh, when I say democratization, I think it's within a cohort that's still, you know, there's still a large cohort of investors in this market. Um, would a flood of capital flowing into the sector, you know, reduce returns overall? Well, possibly, but we might just see a continuation of the trend that we're seeing today, which is, you know, companies, private companies staying private for longer, and we're seeing you know, listed companies being taken private um, uh, by, you know, by funds that have got cash that they think they can exert a more active level of management over the assets than, you know, than, the listed, um, than they are in the listed context. Is that alpha, is that coming from the ability to influence management or is that coming from um, you know, just the valuations as they're presented today? Well, I think alpha in the context of private equity, my argument is alpha comes from this active management its ability to get in, control, influence, um, drive value. I mean, depending again, depending on the part of the uh, of the landscape that you're in, um, you know, leverage is, is a huge driver in the buyout space. But that's not where you know where, where uh, Milford is oriented. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, any more questions from the room? Yep. So the question was very briefly just about the level of information you can get from private firms that would be. Uh, material, non-public information for insider trading in public markets? Yeah. I mean, look, a, a classic one there is around um, customer contracts and, and the detail that sits behind those. So the case that I talked about with uh, data centers, you know, we were literally weighing off a listed play versus an unlisted play, both with very top valuations because the sector was, look, was running pretty hot. Um, what we got with the unlisted play was to really lift the lid and say, well, these X Y, Z customers are billing this much, this is where they've come from, this is where they're going to, we know what their strategies are. Um, that gave real confidence around paying up for some of that future growth versus in a listed environment, you know, those, th that level of information wouldn't have been freely available because it's commercially sensitive. So that's, you know, that's one example. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a few more questions coming through on leverage. Um, what about the amount of leverage in PE adding extra risk to clients' portfolios and the illiquidity of the asset? Yeah, look, I mean, the prudent use of leverage um, 
it adds risks in terms of uh, the ability to service, but it also adds discipline, I think, to the business itself. Um, whether that's you know sort of balance sheet efficiency to drive an enhanced return, or it's actually at times putting more discipline into management to make sure that they're running the business as efficiently, converting to cash, and you know servicing what can be a, sometimes a high debt load. So look, I think the answer is yes, absolutely. You know, leverage can can increase risk, um, but uh, you know, when uh, when it's measured um, appropriately, then I, I don't think it's undue. And do you think evergreen vehicles are becoming more popular as a result of you know better liquidity? Certainly, they've got the potential to. I think the challenge with the evergreen vehicles is just, you know. How are you managing the trading of units in and out uh, for the investors, and how are you keeping it fair for the new, uh, you know, the f folks who are leaving and the new ones coming in? Great, thanks. Um, liquidity is an issue for retail investors, but so are the fees. Can two and twenty still be justified today? Look, that's that's a good question. Um, I think at the institutional end of town. What we're seeing is a real migration. Uh, we're seeing massive consolidation, particularly here in Australia, of the you know the big super funds. It's no no news to anybody in this room, and that's resulting in increasing fee pressure onto managers of all spectrum uh, uh, across all of the spectrum of private equity. Um, is is two and twenty sustainable? Well, I guess what you need to look at is you know the returns that presented here. Those are net of fees. So as much as um, as a large investor, it feels good to beat up a manager and say, well, you know, I'm only paying 150 or 100 basis points uh, for management fees. At the end of the day, what really matters is alpha creation. And if the returns are there net of fees, then yeah, I think that they are sustainable. Okay, there's one last one on online, and because it's about exit strategies, I thought I'd save that one to last. Um, I'll read it out. Excuse me. Who will buy out the PE manager if we have a series of rate rises, especially if listed markets get spanked and confidence falls? A potential liquidity trap? Question mark. Yeah, well, I think one of the good um, uh, things about uh, private equity is that you do actually control the timing of when you go in and when you go out of assets. And there are, you know, clearly you've got certain uh, durations in terms of uh, fund expectations. Mostly, you'll have you know, the ability to extend if, if necessary. And actually, you know, there's a whole lot of value to be created in choosing when you exit. So do we see, you know, is there a downturn coming? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, potentially. Um, is that gonna last forever? Well, you know, almost certainly no. So, you know, if you can weather the storm, and unlike private markets, uh, sorry, unlike public markets, you don't have the constant pressure of you know the glare of the of quarterly updates and the, and the eye of, of investors that can get you into a real you know downward spiral in terms of value. You basically, if you can hold on, you know you know refinance as appropriate, white knuckle it through, you know and wait for better time to kind of crystallise value. Then actually you know that that's an advantage in private markets.